0: All right, if you would, be turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. As you turn there to Romans 12, 9 through 13, let me give you the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with. God grants joyful unity in Christ's body through the display of Christian virtues by his grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. Now, let me pause. I don't want that last bit of phraseology to to be lost here. There's an intention for it being on the key truth last week and this week and in weeks ahead because we have to remember that it's not just justification that this is true for, right? This grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. It is also true of both sanctification and glorification, right? We We are not glorified by our own effort. We are not sanctified by our own effort, but we get to participate, which is different than justification and glorification in some ways, but it is still through this that this is true, and Paul had qualified this in 12 verses 1 and 2. He made it very clear that everything he was going to say, and even further, was by grace. He speaks not because of authority that he has imposed himself or title, but because of God's grace, a fellow pilgrim. And so it is important that we keep that in mind, lest we be uh, uh, swayed or drug away in our own effort, right? Because think about how hard it is. Uh, I'm going to tell you that you've got to love genuinely. What in the world does that mean? And how do you, how do you keep from uh, mustering effort in, in, in a way uh, and try, I'm going I'm to love you genuinely. Oh, please don't, uh, give me some room. Uh, and so it, it can get strange, can it, if we hear, especially when we get to virtues and ethics, not to have our own efforts be spun up. Now, you are a participant. There are things that you need to do to position yourself well, but that is so that God's grace can best help you, right? Not that you would, you would squelch his grace. All right, if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 12, 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now as we step into this, we have to remember from whence we have come. Uh, as we have gone into chapter 12, this is where Paul is beginning to unpack. what does is, what is it look? What's the positive life in the church and in the world to look like? 12 through 16 is going to unpack that for us. He's given us the theology. He's he's given us the the reason. He's given us the background. He's made his case in Romans 1 through 11 as to why the, the righteous should live by faith. Now he's describing what does it look like for the righteous to live by faith. This is the outworking of the application of the gospel to our lives. Now, this is a list, so it's interesting because we're used to more kind of narrative uh, arguments and things of that nature from Paul. This is just a list, and we have to take it as a list, and it was a common way of, of discussing virtues in their time. We do it as well, uh, and so we're going to want to make sure that we pay attention to the words. Oftentimes with a list, the first, the first phrase is going to modify or, or serve as the the, under, uh, the foundation for everything that's going to come after. So it's going to be very important to us because he says, let love be genuine. And we need to unpack that here in just a moment. But before we do that, let me ask you, in what ways do you express genuine love through your actions? Now, you might be thinking, Cameron, it might help if you told us what it means to be genuine and loving. Okay. Well, what, what it means in terms of the gospel is that you are other-oriented, that you love in such a way that you're, you're, you're not necessarily looking for something in return. It's not a commodified exchange. A commodified exchange is the opposite of what it means biblically for love to be genuine, right? You know what I mean by a commodified exchange? That is, well, I will do this if you do that. I will do this in return for that. Now that's not bad in every circumstance per se, but it is not good in in the body of Christ. It's not good in marriage. It's not necessarily good in parenting. It shouldn't be about bargaining. It should be about serving one another, being other oriented. Charles Hodge says of letting love be genuine, that the main thing the Holy Spirit does is orient us outside of ourselves to be able to recognize the needs of others. So having given that qualification, let me ask you the question again. In what ways do you express genuine love through your actions? Are you able? Are you able to love someone else without demanding something in return? Now, I want to be careful here because some of you may be thinking, well, uh, hold on a second, what about a, a circumstance like abuse? That is that is a whole other circumstance for which God's law covers it, genuine and loving to accept abuse. Because that is you actually, in some form or fashion, diminishing the image of God in you. You should want to come out from under that and be free from that. You should want that reconciled. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you and the person will be reconciled. So I want to be careful there's a qualification here because sometimes we can think to the extremes. We're talking about normal, just everyday relationships. How do we let love be genuine? Think marriage. Think parenting. Think neighboring. Think work. Are we truly other-oriented, or is everything on a slant? And If you're wondering, ask somebody. This is probably not a question you can answer, right? That's the difficulty. It's like, oh yeah, all my love's genuine. Not my fault if they don't get it. You know what I mean? Like Sometimes my love is too much. It's like, what was it Michael Scott said? I want people to be afraid of how much I love them. The staff gave me that as a t-shirt. I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) So so we want to be careful that we are uh, careful in in thinking this through. And if you truly want to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, ask somebody you can trust. Have the courage to ask. Ask your children. And you may be saying, Cameron, I am not fixing to weaponize those jokers. They have enough against me. don't, Don't be afraid of what the Lord can do in the spirit in and through that circumstance. What might it look like to your children to hear repentance? To hear you say, I am genuinely sorry if that's the way I have made you feel or, or if that's the way I have actually been. Our longing should be for reconciliation and restoration. So love ought to be genuine among us. And so as we talk about these other categories that Paul going to list out, that is the foundation. It should be, every one of these things should be other oriented. And with no expectation that you will gain something in return other than from having loved in and of itself. It is its own reward, right? I'm a granddad now. I know this is true, right? My, my wife has said, Cameron, you've gone so soft. Yep. And the world's a better place for it. Uh, I'm a better man for it, right? And so what a gift it is, I think that's probably the purpose of grandparenting, is so that you, you realize all the mistakes you made as a parent. You know, the joke is, if I'd known it was going to be like this, I'd have had the grandkids first. There's some problems with that biologically, but you know, I get the sentiment. So as we turn to the text, let's keep this in mind. This is Paul calling us, as he did earlier, to, to humbly care for, and, and be in relationship with one another. Now, these things are oriented in the church first. Now, why would that make sense? Why would it make sense that his, he, in the order of things, he's concerned with how we treat each other in the church? Well, if you think about it, if the bond of Christ is not enough to get us to be other-oriented, what in the world is going to offer us something that's going to get us to be that way out there? If we can't display it among each other who have at least the measure of agreement of of salvation in Christ, there's a lot of things we can disagree on, but we can't disagree on that. Christ is our bond, right? That is the thing that holds us together. He is our foundation and unity. And there's some other things related to that. Don't get me wrong. But if we can't agree on that, what do we have to offer the world? right? That's the unique thing that we have. Are we going to offer them, you know, I remember when I was in youth group, you remember that horrible poster for those of you who were in youth group in like the 80s and 90s or whatever. It's like, if you like Pearl Jam, you're going to love Third Day. No, (laughs) no disrespect to Third Day. Matt lives around the corner from me. He's a great guy, but he ain't Eddie Vedder. Let's just be honest, okay? And he wasn't singing stuff that met my soul like Eddie was. And so, uh, we oftentimes, and I've heard this argument made, what we offer the world is all the stuff without the teeth. And that can't be what we do. Think of, think of how truly uh, amazing Christ is in his love for us. How radical the call to forgiveness. Christ would say to us, if you have anything against someone else in this room, or if you know they have something against you, Leave your offering and go make it right. You've not taken communion until you went and made it right. You can't tell me there hasn't been some time and, and me too, by the way. The, the call for us to let love be genuine is so insanely radical uh, that it's got teeth. And it is the thing that the world is truly missing, forgiveness of sins. Think of the cancel culture. Think of the folks who, who, who there is no road back for them. Right? And again, we, we talked about this in How to Fight. This isn't about consequence. This is about forgiveness and eternal things. There are consequences for the thing we do that should not be just taken away because you said you were sorry. Part of being truly repentant is bearing the consequence. But think of the world, what the world needs from us not lower versions of the thing that it already has, movies and and TV shows and otherwise, right? And that's not the lambast, but, but traditionally we have not given them something better than what they have because the only thing that we have that's better is Jesus. And hopefully that would then change how we relate to one another, which is what Paul is calling us to do here. So he says, let love be genuine. That should be the firm foundation. And as he moves on from this in grace, he says, now abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, this word abhor has two things about it. It is the strongest language of opposition you could possibly use in the Greek, right? This isn't casual. This isn't just like, hey, you know, kind of don't like it or whatever. This, This abhor. What is evil? Now, it would be helpful to us if we were to turn to Proverbs chapter six and look at verses 16 through 19. This is one of the places where Uh, it is quoted what it is that God is against or abhors. In the Hebrew, it is the strongest language possible for opposition. And so if we are to abhor what is evil, and by by the way, the definition of evil is anything that opposes the Lord and his work. Let me pause here before I read this list. In the church at Rome, what was the thing that was the biggest problem in the church at Rome? Was it sexuality? Sexuality? You may say, well, Romans 1 kind of poked at that. No, that wasn't the main problem. In fact, he made it clear that wasn't the main problem. He said, the main problem was how you all were responding, how the Jews were responding to the sexuality of the Gentiles in an unforgiving fashion, using it as an opportunity to be haughty, which is good old-fashioned Southern word. We'll get to that in a minute. What was the issue? What was the issue that was destroying... The work of the church in Rome. Disunity. So when he says, abhor what is evil, we have to at least recognize straight away what he's saying to them. He's not talking about the culture. He's not talking about the world. Yes, there are things that we should abhor in the culture. Don't hear me wrong. But before you get to the culture which is fallen and following its own natural way, We have to look at where we are being inconsistent ourselves. The sharpest critique Jesus had was for those who claimed to be the people of God. You understand that? And you may say, yeah, but that was before um, 1776 or something. Before America came. Oh, really? I don't know that you would make that argument. I'm being... But you follow what I'm saying? Like We act like there's, there's now, but it flipped because you know, we became the new Zion, the new promised land, manifest destiny and so forth. We're a Christian nation. That's not true, by the way. Uh, and so, and so here, here, we need to make sure that we don't change the focus that, that, that Christ himself has given to his people. And Paul is upholding in the church. Do you not think that there was plenty to critique of the government in Rome? Has the world known a more tyrannical governance? I mean, it's sad that we, we say it's even close, that we have governances to argue. And so, remember, let's, let's, when we read this list of what God abhors, remember, in Proverbs, he was giving wisdom uh, to, to uh, the children who were coming up, and he, he wanted them to make sure that they looked Inward first, before they pointed this outward. All right, listen to what, what it says. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. What does that mean? Is that when, when your spouse proves that they were wrong and you were right, and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> Is that haughty eyes? Kind of, maybe. Maybe. But not even what he's talking about. What, would he, what might he mean here biblically to have haughty eyes? Because it's connected to a problem they had in Rome. It means to look down on another, considering that your image bearing is better than their image bearing. To have haughty eyes is to think of yourself not soberly as Paul calls us to. It is to think oneself better because of something either you do or have done or haven't done. And I've mentioned this before. One of the interesting places that I saw this was the rescue mission. Now the rescue mission, if you don't know, was a homeless shelter for drug addicted uh, men and then women who had been displaced due to either addiction or abuse, right? And it was more the men's side than the women's side that this occurred on, interestingly. Uh, there was a hierarchy. The crackheads were, were the lowest. They were considered the lowest of the low. Uh, the, the, the others who were addicted to opioids, they thought themselves better than the crackheads because at least it started with back pain. But what was striking to me, and what I often say to them, is like, yeah, but you're all here. I didn't say it in a way to condemn them, but more importantly, like, don't, don't, don't worry about the hierarchy. We all need the same thing here. And so to have haughty eyes is to think oneself better than what God has placed upon you. Is his image not enough? Can you improve upon the image of God in your own effort? No, you cannot. Only Christ can improve the image of God of one who doesn't yet know him, right? And that is the improvement of the image. Actually, it's not that you suddenly get prettier because I am clear evidence of that as I stand before you. It's that you actually begin to be able to see yourself, hopefully, as God sees you. Beloved, son or daughter of the God most high. That should humble us, not have us be haughty. And then he goes on, a lying tongue. Why would God hate a lying tongue? Well, because of all the damage. Think of what James says about the damage that the tongue can do. How many churches have been destroyed by backroom chatter. By, by misrepresenting what goes on. How many families, how many communities, how many relationships are destroyed purely in, in, in just lying? Embellishing the truth, hyperbole even. Omission, commission, whatever. Because the, the, the reason that God hates it is because of the relational damage that it does. You cannot trust one another. You can't have faith. We can't have faith in each other. We can't trust each other. And hands that shed innocent blood. I think that's fairly obvious, right? God so hates that that he would not allow David to build his temple. And David was a man after God's own heart. The anointed, one in whom a covenant was named. That's how much God hates it. He would not allow him. That was the consequence of David's having shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. I don't think I need to give much explanation to that, but but if you're going to be a schemer and you're going to rush to the fight, and some of the ways our feet are swift to run to evil, by the way, is gossip. In the South, we call it prayer requests sometimes, but gossip. We are swift to run... Oh. So-and-so's got something. I need to know that. That sounds like a little tasty morsel. I need that information. I don't want to get caught flat-footed. As if God himself is not sovereign and will let you know when you need to know. And he goes on. A false witness who breathes out lies. Again, this is a violation of the ninth commandment. This is very... Uh, uh, convicting to me because how, how often do we share information about one another or fail to protect each other's reputation when something comes up among the brothers. Now, let's pause for a second and pay attention to something. Which of these seven things that God's hate God hates are sexual? Who said none? Joe Cole, you are a man of God's own heart. It's true. Now, you may say, uh, but God does hate sexual sin. Absolutely, he does. Absolutely, do, do not get me wrong. It is out of phase when the church is spending more of its time talking about a sin that is not the thing that God hates the most in her midst. We have found ourselves at a time in culture when we are talking more about something that cannot actually destroy us out of fear that it might destroy us and are failing to deal the thing that is destroying us. Which is disunity. Now, we're not talking about cheap unity. We're not talking about, like, all right, well then, let's just let, you know, bygones be bygones. No, remember, you got to fight toward each other. This is why I did this sermon on how to fight. There is a time and a place we have to fight for something and toward one another. Not a way. As much as it depends on us, and we'll get to that next week. But we have to actually abhor what is evil to God himself in right order. And I would argue, I think, the church at large, and our discussion yesterday at Presbytery is evident of this, we are out of phase. We're out of phase. I think we need to reorient ourselves around the things that God would challenge us with. Too often we're not bearing the fruits in keeping with repentance, so it makes it very difficult for us to actually look like Jesus. And then you have to hold fast to what is good. What is good is the will of God, and what is perfect and what is true. Well, what is that? Well, if you were to read the chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, you would find out that he is just circling right back around again to love. What are the two greatest commandments? Love God, love neighbor, as you yourself have been loved. Do not leave that part off. Because so often, I think it's our failure to actually meditate upon that reality that keeps us from loving the other two. And so it is critical that we hold fast to that. And if you, so if Paul is having to tell them you got to hold fast to it, what does that seem to imply? It is going to be hard. You are going to have to fight toward it. You are going to have to make decisions in your life that put you in a position to do that. You've shown up today, that's one. Right? To, to gather for worship is a way in which we are trying to fight for that. And we'll get to this in just a moment. But you, we, we, too often we treat worship as, a, as an, a magic antidote. No, it is something you have to fight for, toward, and through. Right? How many of you have, are already thinking, we ain't even made it past the first verse. How long are <laughs> we going to be here? Hang in there. Fight for it. You may have to fight in and out. I get it. You may have to take a lap. You you may have to make sure there's no Swedish meatballs in the lobby in here in just a moment. But it's important that we hold fast to what is good, recognizing it doesn't come easy. And then he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, I will confess to you, this one's hard for me. I cannot help but hear from the rise and fall of Mars Hill. One of the people who was in that was a young man named Jesse. And Jesse said these words, and it struck me like a lightning bolt. He said, if you hear an organization or a church say, we're family, does anybody know what he said next? Run. And it struck me, and I've been wrestling with it ever since. Now, part of that is my own suffering and abuse all around the concept of family. Now, the first mistake I told y'all I made when I got here was telling you, "Don't, don't give me banal flattery. I still kind of hold to that, but I shouldn't have put it that way. The second mistake I I, I made was to to make sure you understood I'm about as cuddly as a porcupine. Don't touch me. Right? Don't hug me. Now, can we be honest for a second? Where that comes from is sinful. I was abused. I don't like to be touched. Uh, without me knowing it, I better see it coming because I've got it. Uh, the uncle who was special forces, he meant it. Like if you snuck up on him, he was going to kill you. That's not me. I don't, I don't that's not about it. But, but I should be seeking to have that redeemed. Should I not? It is sinful that I have embraced it. And to you, I say, I'm sorry. Because that colors and begins to, to affect our congregation. We can be a bit of a standoffish people if we're not careful. Now, I ain't saying run up and go hugging on me now. This ain't baptism by fire. We got to go slow. Right? We got to practice or something. Jennifer Skeen has single-handedly tried to help me in this regard. It hasn't helped that much, i got to be honest with you. But I do appreciate it. And there's some people who just don't even care. They just do it anyway, and it's a gift. But 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 this language is difficult because we have to know this isn't talking about like a patriarchal system that where where you are to obey and, and, sh- and shut your mouth and never critique. In fact, Paul is encouraging. We have to critique the system. This is what he is doing. And he's already stated, not as one who's in authority, but as one who is has been given the grace of Christ. He could do it by authority. He has done it by authority, but in this section, he had qualified it by saying, I come to you as a fellow pilgrim, as one who has been granted grace. So while this language may be difficult for some of us, we need to recognize its sweetness and its goodness to us. So what it essentially means is that we recognize we are connected and that God is good oftentimes in some of the strange pairings that he makes. And some of the strange people that he puts in the same room, I've gained a ton by being willing to be open uh, to circumstances where I was like, I really, even yesterday, all right, I got to confess, when Presbytery comes around, it is, I I, I am not, I don't jump up at four in the morning ready to go, right? And some of it is, I just don't like meeting, I like long meetings and that kind of stuff. There's a faster way to do a lot of this stuff. And that's arrogant on my part, right? Right? But, but, but I'm, I'm learning, no, Lord, I've, I've, I've made vows to this process. You, you have put me in this circumstance to some extent, and I need, to, I need to do what I can to be an ambassador of reconciliation in that place as well as any other place. And yesterday was actually, arguably, we argued, kind of enjoyable. And don't go thinking, we're losing our minds. <laughs> but we saw something good that we hadn't seen in a while. Uh, and, and so that was helpful. And in that conversation, Philip did abstain from that. So you have to ask him his perspective. Uh, but but it's it's it, it's not easy. And so, how often are we keeping ourselves from gaining what the Lord has for us because we treat each other as strangers instead of family? Now, this doesn't mean that you're to share all of your personal secrets with everybody. Because well, you're my brother in Christ, or you're my sister in Christ. Right? There's, even Jesus showed there are people who are going to be closer and people who are going to be further. Of the 70, 67 of them were not near as close as Peter, James, and John. They didn't get to see the same things they saw. That's okay. Right? But what it does mean is that we're committed to something and that it is not a bond that is easily broken. That's what it means to show one another this familial affection. And then he goes on from there that we ought to outdo one another in showing honor. Now think about how consistent this is with not being haughty, how this helps us to not be haughty. When is the last time that you did this just naturally? You just couldn't help yourself. How many of you, does it come natural to just build other people up and talk about how great other people are? That's not really natural for most of us. So to do that, we're going to have to work on this. And you may be saying, Cameron, I thought you said it was by grace. It is. And that's what we have to work in and through and for, is God's grace. We don't try to outdo one another in love so that other people be like, man, that that Cameron, he sure does outdo other people in honoring. That's great. In fact, it may be done in such a way that it's anonymous. It may be done in such a way that nobody knows that you're doing it except the person that you have honored. But look, think about what kind of community we would be if this was the case. What would our children's ministry look like? If we sought to outdo one another and honor that generation, and you know, we talked about it this morning in our joint meeting, we, we have a, a huge, this is all of us, have not done a great job loving our elementary school kids. It has been a slog to get enough teachers to just teach kindergarten and first grade. Well, what about the second through fifth graders? And so this is, this is a way in which we need to show them honor. They matter to us. And it's beginning to communicate to some parents, if we're not careful, that, yeah, that, that's just a group we don't, we just can't. We've got some room issues. We've got all kinds of stuff going on here, but we can overcome it. Can we not? Can we not get creative? We can figure it out, but we need your help. Because we also have an ethos of not destroying our volunteers. We don't want to just wear everybody out, Right? And so many of you serve and thank you. But this is a need. We need to pray about it and we need to engage it. And then he goes on to say, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. So if he's having to tell you not to be slothful in zeal, and this is a reference more than likely to worship, but also life in general, but, but worship is a place that's displayed. Right? So if he's having to tell you don't be slothful, what does that mean? What is your natural inclination? It's to not have zeal. Is to be critical. It is to, it's to not really want to be here. The room's hot, the sound's weird, uh, whatever, right? We got issues. And we're not that exciting, and, and you know, I, I get it. I get it. But but is it my job to make sure you have zeal? I mean, I can do that. Uh, I can go running down the aisle and get you guys whipped into a frenzy. I can flip some table. Like, we can get crazy if y'all want to. But if that's how long is that gonna last? Not past a halftime speech. It just doesn't do it. Like that's that's not what ought to motivate us. What ought to motivate us is how God has loved us. Again, this is where love has to be genuine. Your zeal needs to be born of the fact that God has loved you and called you into his family. And we're not to be lazy with that. It takes work, right? Just as I have to prepare for this, so ought you prepare for worship. And this is also important parents for our kids, right? How how many of your kids, uh, I don't care what it is. It's not just church. Church is probably the one place that you ask them to go sit and listen to a monologue and sing songs they don't really know all that well. Uh, And they're not really talking about the things that excite them and don't have the beats that they like and all this kind of stuff. Right. So so are are they excited about ever going and sitting somewhere and listening to an adult talk? Do you let them off the hook for all those other things? Like like so often we do at church. How might we help teach them not to be slothful? and to have a zeal for worship. Some of it I think is, is we're guilty of sometimes presuming they understand or have a knowledge of what's going on here that they don't have. And maybe we failed to disciple them and catechize them in some ways. This is why Bonnie has been so passionate about trying to get catechism into children's ministry. And uh, there, there's a, she, she has a longing to be able to do this curriculum on worship to help equip our children, the children of the church, to, to, to know, and again, to help them see it is not about preference necessarily. It's not about something that is to be manifested in you because of the event. It is something you are to be excited about because you know what, who has called you to worship and what is actually happening here. And we do them a disservice by thinking, ah, we just need to make it more exciting and dumb it down. That's insulting to them as God's children. It's insulting to God himself. He goes on to say, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This, this section, this ethic, this virtue is to be formed because of the return of Christ. We can rejoice with hope in a fallen world because Christ is coming back. And not just that he's coming back, but he makes intercession for us even now. And we're filled with the Spirit. We are not of those who should have no hope. Right? Because of who Christ is and and what we have coming in the new heavens, new earth. And then he says, be patient in tribulation. What does that mean? What's that mean? It's going to happen to you. You will suffer. If you're in union with Christ, you're going to suffer. If you live in a fallen world, even if you're not a Christian, you're going to suffer. It's just, it's part of the aging process. It's part of relational processes. It's part of parenting. It's part of work. It's part of leisure. It's part of everything that we know. And so he's saying, because of who Christ is, we have the liberty, the ability to be patient in worship. Is it going to be easy? No, it took Christ dying and rising again for that to happen and for you to be filled with this spirit and for you to have a weekly Sabbath and for you to have the hope of all the promises and the covenants and all these things. So no, it will not be easy. You will have to lean into the grace of God for this to be true of you. And oh, by the way, be constant in prayer. As if, we, as if you weren't down on the ground enough, let's go ahead and kick you a few times in the ribs, it seems. But that's not what he's saying. But to be constant in prayer, he's already told you. What does the Holy Spirit do when you don't know what to ask for or say? He's interceding for you. Here's the truth. If you have the Spirit in you, guess what is true? You are constant in prayer. Now, whether or not you choose to access that reality or you choose to participate in that reality... That's up to you to take that opportunity because is Christ, does he, does he stop interceding for us? Does he take a break? He's like, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm going to need, somebody going to take my seat for a second. I've got to run to the, the, the holy throne real quick, the other one. No, he, he is constant in his intercession for us, his advocacy for us. This gives us the liberty to pray. To show up any you want to, you ain't got to have a special place. What if you had to drive? How, how much would your prayer improve if you had to drive more than two feet to do it? Speaking of Josh talking about gym memberships, I kind of felt like he was calling me out a little bit. It's like you're a little heavy. Maybe you know you should have relationships at the gym. I don't know why I heard that personal. I just did. Uh, <laughs> and so so so. What's the rule? The further the gym is from you, what happens to your actual going? So what if you had to go, I don't know, to Jerusalem to pray? How often would you pray? Never hardly. But you don't have to do that because why? The Holy Spirit is in you, and what are you? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means you have access to the throne. At all times. What a gift that is to us. So Paul's not heaping a burden on us. He's telling us of something we have in God's grace. You can be patient in tribulation. You can rejoice in hope. You can be constant in prayer because of what Christ has done for you. You can outdo one another with honor. You can be filled with zeal in worship. And he goes on. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, generosity is just evidence of who and whose we are. The Lord has provided so richly for us. For us to withhold, to have a miserly scarcity mindset is uh, to, to ultimately deny who God is. And then to, to not seek to show, what does it mean to seek to show hospitality? Is this something that happens Accidentally. No, we should be active in asking ourselves who in our church is not that well connected? Who in our church could use just a meal, a good home cooked meal? You think that doesn't include like college students, single folks, other folks, like there's all kinds of ways in which, and you all, I I will say, have been great in many respects in terms of hospitality. I'm hearing quite frequently more and more than I, I have in previous years of folks having people over and being intentional about that. And if you're somebody who's saying, I ain't been invited nowhere, well, either invite to where you are or invite yourself to where they are and, and, and take it from there. But there are ways in which we are to be active in seeking to show hospitality. How are you on Sunday morning? Are you hospitable to the people who are coming in? Are you hospitable to the children? You know how important it is to the children of the church to have adults know their names and to love and care for them and cut up with them a little bit? That matters. Because they feel like second-class citizens. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to go find another citizenship. So hospitality needs to be across the board. A lot of times, you know who gets left out of hospitality? Probably some of the most those of us on staff, and the elders and the deacons, I think because oftentimes there's a couple things you're thinking. Man, those folks are busy. That's true. Well, uh, that word is actually meaningless. It's prioritized. We're prioritized. But you don't think we wouldn't prioritize you cooking us a meal? (laughs) We would. Or hanging out. We love that kind of stuff. We don't only want to see you when your life is falling apart. We don't only want to see you when you need us. And vice versa. But so, so often for us, tyranny of the urgent, we do have a lot going on. It's nice to have somebody else invite us. That's also true for the elders and deacons. So often it's just assumed, well, that's their job. No. Is that what this says here? And so we, we need to 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 grow in this area to, to be able to love one another in hospitality. And think of how if this was the the... Uh, the character of a church, the ethics and virtues of a church, would you not want to go there? Right? So think about like the, sometimes, and I get it, feelings are tough. There are times I'm sure some of y'all felt, in this place, it's just not that exciting. It's like 80% introvert, uh, staring contests all over the place. It's crazy. Uh, but, but what's your contribution are you helping in how you're coming out or is it all for someone else to lift and carry? I get it. There are times when, like I said, we often aren't invited very many places except when there's some sort of a need. But I also can invite you to my house as well, right? Because Susan's an awesome cook. And so, so it cuts both ways. I'm not just throwing stones at you all either. Um, but but think about if this was the character and the life of the church. What this would mean to us, what it would mean for our witness in the world, and be encouraged. You can, we can be all of these things because of who Christ is and the Spirit that dwells in us, and we can do it in such a way that it brings joy to us, and glory to God, and is for the life of the world. Listen to what Michael Gorman says about this passage. He says this list of instructions. It's not random gifts, he gives the ethics or the virtues. He has these kind of lists in a number of places, and they don't all contain the same things, by the way. So he, in in essence, is personalizing this for those who were in the Roman church and some of the struggles that they were having. Think about how calling for a church to be hospitable is very important to a church divided. Think about how outdoing one another in honor is critical to a church that's outdoing one another and putting each other down. And so, he goes on, The theme of love and goodness, though somewhat general, unites the maxims into a coherent and cruciform shape. What does that mean? Cruciform just means like Jesus. It's like it's cross-shaped. Moreover, Paul seems to have done some grouping of the maxims into his own favorite categories of faith, hope, and love. And he gives you a list of references. The theological virtues understood through the lens of the cross. This is a great passage if you want to spend some time meditating, asking the Spirit to show you some ways in which you can bear fruits in keeping with repentance and bear fruit of the Spirit himself. This is a great list for you to take and pray through. Pray the Bible. Ask the Lord. I've been doing it this week. It ain't all fun, by the way because of what it exposes and yet it is more freeing to know than to go around foolish and blind. So my question for you is how have you been loved and cared for as family by others in the church? This is an important way in which God is good. It's an important thing for us to remember and to, and to make sure that we share with others. If you feel like, no, I, I've, I've I've, I've been missing out. Well, you need to examine yourself. If is there some ways in which you're putting yourself in a position to where it's less likely to happen for you? Are you asking the church to chase you down and hug you hard until you fall on the ground? Uh, or, or, or is there some genuine ways in which we are failing and we need to know about it so as to grow in repentance and the fruit of the Spirit? And then how can you help us to grow in being more loving and hospitable? If you're a Christian, this is your call. Everybody's a little bit different. Not everybody's going to do the same things. They're going to manifest it in different ways. That's the beauty of diversity. That's why Paul gives tons of creative room here. Think of all the different ways we could outdo one another in honoring one another. There's no one flat right way to do that. There's hundreds of ways. The only thing limiting us is our imagination. So Romans 12, 9 through 13 teaches us that God grants, listen at this, God grants, gives joyful unity in Christ's body through the display of Christian virtues. So as we live this out, we are blessed with a unity it is not necessarily all that true in a very, very, very fragmented world. And he does that by his grace alone. So it's a gift. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. And it is not ours to do with what we will. And that is through faith alone, meaning we have to trust him that it will bear fruit in patience and long-suffering and that we do that in Christ who has empowered us through his death death resurrection, ascension, and promise of return. Think of the gift this is to us, church. Think of who we could be to one another and then to the world. What a beautiful picture this could be of us. And I, I would say it is, it is primarily true of us in many respects. There's some areas we're obviously probably missing out a little bit, but there's always gonna be places to grow. Let's not be afraid to grow. Let's not be afraid to bear fruits in keeping with repentance where we have failed. Let's not be afraid to display the fruit of the Spirit toward one another. I won't be afraid for you to hug me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace that you give these gifts to us, that you you work these things out in and through us as we grow in Christ, as we grow in the power of the Spirit. Lord, would you help us to fight for what is good, to fight toward each other uh, for your glory, for our joy, and for the life of the world. Help us to be willing to bear fruits in keeping with repentance where we fail. Help us to to display the fruit of the Spirit for for the good of those in our spheres of influence. Lord, help us to look more like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.